Let's foray into Nevada's wild spaces. This is a half an hour adventure with the Nevada Department of Wildlife. This is Nevada Wild. Here on this Welcome to Nevada Wild, brought to you by the Nevada Department of Wildlife. I'm Ashley Sanchez, joined by our co-host, Aaron Keller. We also have Outdoor Education Coordinator, Bobby Jones. And for the first time ever, we have Hank Shaw. He has written multiple, I think five cookbooks at this point. He's also the host of Hunt, Gather, Talk, and he runs the Hunter, Angler, Gardener Cook website. So Hank, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me on. And every week we post a Wild Food Friday and we steal your recipes all the time to post for people and people love it. So that's why we were like, it's about time we get you on. It's not stealing if I'm okay with it. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) We have Hank's permission. (laughs) Um, So let's just jump right in. I want to hear just how you got involved in cooking in the first place. I know you have, you have an interesting background. You actually started as a writer. So could you just get into your background and how you started cooking? Well, I actually started as a cook when I was quite young. Um, so I got exposed to wild food early, but in an odd way. So I'm from New Jersey and I'm the last of four. And there's a gap between me and my next oldest sister. And so my mom and my stepdad really liked to go to nice restaurants as kind of that was their thing. And so as a little kid, I was exposed to game meats and wild game in fancy restaurants in New York City and in in the areas like that. So for me, wild game has always had a connotation with with special food as opposed to you know, something that, that poor people ate, which is, which is the case in a lot of part in a lot of parts of the country. So I got interested in it at a young age. And then I, you know, I've been cooking, you know, in, the, in my home kitchen since I was probably 13 or 14. And then I ended up uh, working in restaurants in, you know, in my early twenties before and, and during kind of the beginning of my journalism career. But I spent some time uh, as a, versus a dishwasher. And then uh, as a line cook and a, kind of a low-level sous chef. I, I never ran a kitchen and I never owned a restaurant, but uh, I've done my time on the line. So that's kind of the basis of my uh, culinary training. And then I just stayed kind of a dedicated amateur for the rest of my life. And that's it's now been 30 years since I've worked full-time in a kitchen. Very cool. And then on top of it, you, you're a journalist. So with those skills combined, you're the perfect person to have five cookbooks. <laughs> we are all the sum of our decisions. Yeah. So could you tell us a little bit about then your journalism career? Sure. I traded one misfit job uh, for another misfit job. And, you know, they're, they're essentially the exact same profession. Um, they attract people who are off the beaten track. Um, we have weird hours. We are, you know, we, we like our, our substances. Uh, <laughs> and, but we do it because we feel it's a calling. I mean, nobody gets into the, nobody works in a kitchen or nobody becomes a journalist to make money. You just don't, you do it for other reasons. So the mindset really translated quite well. And I ended up covering politics for pretty close to 18 years and mostly state legislatures in various states across the country. But I, I did cover, I covered the president. I didn't cover the president's seat. I covered presidential races 
as well as Congress for a bit. And so, you know, I, yeah, I was in the room where the sausage was made for quite some time. And then um, I ended up trying to move away from that or starting around 2006, um, because rather than the idea of compromise and debate, which was the essence of politics when I, when I got into it, it became people uh, who are very polarized shouting past each other. And that's, it doesn't really matter what your politics are. That's inherently boring if your job is to write about that. So it was a, it was a very welcome shift in my profession um, when I made it. Wow. You have such a diverse background between the cooking and the journalism. You said it's uh, misfit jobs. Is that what you called them? <laughs> I could relate. I was a journalist for a while, so totally understand everything you were saying about that. And then Aaron, do you have a question? I see you're unmuted. Yeah, I was going to ask Hank. So then how did you make the jump? Did somebody that you trusted, that you knew, did they push you to kind of start with making cookbooks and kind of going out on your own? Or how'd you finally make that jump? Well, um, there was a man named Johnny Apple. And Johnny Apple was a New York Times food writer and one of the best of his age. So R.W. Apple was his, uh, was his byline. And, but he had been one of their major political correspondents in the 60s and 70s before that. And so I had watched that career and I kind of wanted to be the poor man's Johnny Apple. And so I started to do food writing on the side at the newspapers that I worked for. And then in 2007, I started Hunter Angler Gardener Cook. And that website's been going strong for 14 years now. And yeah, God, it'll be 14 years in, in about a, three weeks. And so I started that because I very quickly realized that I had more to say about um, food in general, because the, the website took a little bit of time to evolve into what it is now but wild food in particular than I could ever sell in magazines. So the website kind of took off and then I was nominated for a James Beard award, which if you're not familiar, uh, it's basically the Oscars of the food world. And I was nominated uh, twice in 2009 and 2010. And to be nominated is great because it's like being on a podium in the Olympics because they only nominate three. So I'd like to say that I was bronze one year and silver the next. And that's what gave me uh, the chance to write my first book, which is Hunt, Gather, Cook. And, and the second nomination, that's when the, the, the book deal started. And then because my books didn't fail, thank God, um, I got the opportunity to write more of them. And then in 2013, I actually won the James Beard Award. So I was very happy with that. Well, congratulations. That's a huge accomplishment. And I feel I'm honored to even have you on here talking with us. Oh, come on. I use toilet paper like the rest of us. <laughs> yeah, seriously. <laughs> uh, so you said that you were first introduced to Wild Game in your childhood, just at restaurants. So when did you get involved with hunting? Have you always been a hunter? No, I actually didn't start hunting until about 20 years ago when I was living in Minnesota. So I've been fishing and gathering wild plants and mushrooms and things since I was a tiny kid. So the, the two kind of the three legged stool of, of wild food, I had two of them more or less from birth, but hunting, uh, I didn't pick it up until I was in Minnesota and I was working at the St. Paul Pioneer Press with a guy named Chris Niskanen, who, if you are an old timer listening to this podcast, you might know him because he was the outdoor writer for the Reno paper. God, it's got to be 25 years ago. It's, it's, so he, was, he cut his eye teeth in the, in the Reno newspaper 
um, a billion years ago. So he has a Nevada connection. And uh, he taught me how to hunt, basically. So we had been fishing together. And it was it was really an eye opening experience to see that you could read land the way that I could read water, because, you know, I've been a commercial fisherman and, and I've been a you know, recreational fisherman and a, you know, deckhand on a charter boat and all that kind of stuff. So I know that being an angler is far more than holding a rod and a reel in your hand and, and being a hunter is far more than holding a shotgun or a rifle in your hand. So to see that in person was really kind of intoxicating. And, and, and I like to say that Niski created a monster. I like the way that you put that, Hank, because it's so true. When you hunt with somebody that's hunted before or you fished with somebody that's fished before, you can definitely tell right away that they can, you know, they can keep their elevation if they're truck rounding or they can see where the fish are lying when they're fishing. And if you don't, then you're not going to be real successful. Exactly. So, Hank, we have a lot of people that are, I guess, what I would say, coming to hunting and angling from a food motivated perspective. And I think um, there's a level of intimidation there. And it's just funny to see that your story is, you know, in 20 years, you've gone from not hunting to, you know, forefront of uh, wild game cooking. If you can call yourself a dedicated amateur, but I think we're past that point now. I, I just wanted to ask, you know, what advice or insight would you give those people that are kind of um, coming at it, maybe from a point closer to you rather than growing up hunting and fishing? I think this is, applies to all cooking, not just game and fish, but if you are intimidated by the thing that you're about to cook, the prime, the prime directive is that you can always cook it more. You can't uncook something. So if you're going to make a mistake and you're just starting out, make that mistake of undercooking it because you can fix undercooking. If you've overcooked it, you can still salvage it, but it's typically not the same dish that you, that you intended to start. Um, and the second piece to that is beginners always, always, always cook the tender parts of the animal too much. And I'm talking about back straps or breasts, or things like that. And they cook the tough parts of the same animal too little. So if I had a dollar for every time I heard somebody say, oh, man, you can't eat wild turkey legs. They're inedible. I could eat at the French Laundry more than Gavin Newsom. And I just it's crazy. It's like they will get soft. They will be, get tender. It just needs time. So uh, time is your friend if you're cooking a tough part, and time is your enemy when you're cooking a tender part. And I'm happy to go into more detail on that when you, if you want. Oh, yeah. We want to hear about this. <laughs> so there is no intramuscular fat in, in wild game with impossibly rare exceptions. I did shoot a whitetail in Wyoming once that had marbling. Um, but it's that that's the exception that proves the rule. So when you have no internal fat in anything that you're cooking fat, as we all know, is an insulator. If you are a skinny person, you get colder than a fatter person. And that just, that's just physics. And so when you're dealing with something that doesn't have any internal fat, it can gain and lose temperature very quickly. So a piece, a, a, a ribeye, a beefsteak, gains and loses temperature much slower than the same piece of meat on a deer or an elk, which would be the backstrap. So this is why the prime directive is to undercook it if you're, if you're not, if you don't have the force with you and you will get the force with you, but it takes like a thousand times and that's an exaggeration, but not a huge exaggeration. So, I mean, I probably cooked, 
I don't know, 10,000 duck breasts and, and, you know, maybe 5,000 pieces of backstrap. And so, I mean, I literally could do this, you know, hungover or drunk and not mess it up because I've just done it so many times. And it's, that's, you just have to get that muscle memory. And it's just like anything that you try. If you, if you're trying something for the first time, yeah, you're going to have, it's going to be difficult. And then you'll, you'll be able to do it with, with, with mindfulness. Um, like I'm learning Spanish right now. And so I can speak Spanish if I'm thinking hard about it, but I can't, you know, if somebody talks to me in Spanish, like out of the corner of my ear, sure. I might be able to respond to them once in Spanish, but then if we're going to have a conversation, I have to sort of think about it quite a bit. And it's going to be the same thing with you and, and, and cooking game. And eventually that falls away. And then you can, you know, you can watch the football game while cooking your, your game and you don't mess it up because it's just, you've done it enough times. And, and so I think that's, that's an important piece. Um, but there's a lot more um, that goes into it. This is great advice that I'm going to use because I hope it gets to the point where I don't have to be so concentrated. It Bobby always gives me meats to wild game meats to cook. So I've been getting better, but it's still a work in progress. But um, yeah, we have a lot more to get into, but it is time to take a quick break, but we will be right back. You are listening to Nevada Wild. If you enjoy listening to our podcast, leave us a review on iTunes and SoundCloud. For more information on hunting, fishing, boating, and all things wildlife, go to endow.org. Now back to the show. Welcome back to Nevada Wild. Today we are joined by the one and only Hank Shaw. He is the author of five different cookbooks. He has the Hunter Angler Gardener Cook website, among many other things. Hank, it's great to have you, as we said in the first half. Um, But during the break, you were just filling us in on the chaos theory, which you were hoping to get into. So I just wanted to have you explain that. Yeah, so I call it chaos theory. It's not really actual mathematical chaos theory, of course, but the unlike anything that you buy in the supermarket, wild game, and it, to some extent fish to that matter as well, um, but really game has this variability that is that has to be grappled with, and it can't be mastered. It's much like it's much like Derrick Henry of the Tennessee Titans. He can only be contained. He can't be controlled, and so uh, you don't know how old the animal was. You have an idea, maybe. You don't know what that animal was eating. You have an idea, but maybe. And you don't know from what region that animal ate. So you have things like ducks. Any duck hunter out there knows that a spoonie is not the same thing as a canvas back. And if you've hunted enough canvas backs, you know that if you hunt them in the San Francisco Bay, they might be eating Baltic clams. But if you eat them in Nevada, say, you know, Fallon, they might be eating sago tubers. And so the, the diet of, of any given animal that you then cook can dramatically affect its flavor. And this is very, 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 very prominent in bears and pigs and ducks because bears, pigs, and ducks are all omnivores and you literally are what you eat. So that's a thing that you have to factor in. So I've had friends who have shot trophy black bears in British Columbia that were vile because all they've been eating were salmon. And then I've had other people who have shot bear in, say, Nevada or, or California, and they were amazing because there are no fish to be found. And, and so the fat on that, on that bear was 
tremendous. So the other thing is birds are either young of the year or they're not. Um, it's very difficult to tell the age of a beer of a bird unless it has a band on it. So you can, the, you can, you can determine young of the year on a bird. And I won't go into that now because we are short on time, but you, it, if it's young of the year, great, cool. You can do a whole bunch of things with it. If it's not, um, it could be 25 years old and anybody who has ever stewed a whole bunch of duck legs or goose legs knows that there's always those two that just never get tender. And it's just because, well, that was a geriatric gadwall or something like that. And so these are things that you just have to accept and, and roll with if you're going to be a good wild game cook. I mean, it's not a store-bought chicken, which store-bought chickens are typically six weeks, seven weeks old. And there's virtually nothing that is that, the only thing that is that young in the wild game world that we can possibly shoot is a dove on opening day. Everything else is going to be older than that. So that's just a thing that, you know, you can, you, it takes a little while to wrap your mind around it, but it's an important thing of becoming a better wild game chef. Yeah, that is great information, especially for people just getting started um, with wild game cooking. Really, you can't cancel any meats out. Say you've made something, it doesn't taste great. Keep at it, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, and then there's like the, you know, mallards. Mallards can be everything from sublime to disgusting. Like I've seen mallards eating dead salmon on the side of the river. Exactly. Good. I see uh, Aaron and Bobby laughing. <laughs> yeah, I've just been nodding my head at everything Hank's been saying because it is so different. So Hank, when you, so to get through the chaos there, do you start with a, do you have like a go-to recipe? Like if you shoot a buck or you shoot a duck that you would try or how, how do you manage the chaos theory then? So uh, with bucks, you generally have to understand that the, with very few exceptions, the fats can be waxy on a, on a cervid. So any, any deer or elk or moose, um, but it, it varies depending on the diet. So like coos deer in, in Southern Arizona, they have the least waxy fat in my experience. And then anything that's been on an ag field has the most. So that, and then you have to factor in rut. Um, if you're hunting a buck in rut, it's going to be an inferior meat than a, a buck before the rut or even at the very beginning of the rut. If you catch, actually your prime venison is going to be right when the rut begins because they're like, they're in full fighting shape. Middle to end and in post rut, I mean, sure, go for it. I won't, I, I won't personally hunt bucks that late because the condition of the meat is going to be wretched. Uh, with ducks, you know, it's just, there's sort of a general rule like pintails, green wing teal, canvas backs, uh, speckle belly geese, wood ducks there are certain species that are always going to be delicious and you pluck them they're going to be worth it there's you know, they're not going to fail you gadwall can be variable widgeon can be variable blue wings can be variable and then there's another set like golden eye buffle heads spoonies um, there are certain sets of ducks that are like they're stinky and so your default should be to skin them i mean the meat's fine but the fat's no good so that kind of gets you started uh and then you learn nuances local to your region. And then switching gears a little bit, I wanted to see, have you noticed just any unappreciated cuts of meat that people don't, don't use as much as they can? Tons. Shanks would be my number one. Like it's on my tombstone. It's going to be, it's going to say pluck the duck, bleed the fish, 
don't grind the shanks. Like, and, and I will be happy with that. That's, that's pretty okay for a, for life's accomplishment. Um, <laughs> I think so too. <laughs> and so shanks, shanks is a huge one. Necks or another, I'm cooking a neck roast uh, tonight, as a matter of fact. Um, I think uh, drumsticks of animals, um, you know, turkey drumsticks are underappreciated. Uh, giblets are underappreciated. Um, the tongues of, of big game animals are underappreciated. There, there are a lot of these cuts that I could feed anybody. I mean, other than a vegetarian, of course, I could feed pretty much anybody and they'll be like, this is amazing. What is it? I'm like, oh, it's gizzards. And they're like, no way. I'm like, way where it's, I don't want you to eat these pieces of, of meat because the, I think you should. This is not broccoli. I would want you to eat them because you're going to be like, damn, that's good. And that's kind of what I work on. And, and I actually spend a lot of time loving the unloved. Nice. And I feel like we've done wild game. We've done multiple wild game cooking podcasts in the past. And Keller, I know you've mentioned shanks and tongue before as things that people don't use. Yep. Yep, exactly. And pluck your ducks. Don't just breast them. Leave the skin on. If, if somebody breasts a pintail, an angel dies somewhere. <laughs> you know, well, we've kept Bobby this quiet. He's like, he's got a thousand questions rolling around in his brain, I'm sure. And well, you should have seen the list he had before we got in here. <laughs> he had a whole list of things. See, my problem is I consume a lot of Hank's stuff from the books to the website to pouring over the recipes in the comments all the time. So I'm just trying to, you know, not turn into a fanboy over here. <laughs> yeah, Bobby's actually the one that connected us to Hank Shaw. And then we started posting his recipes for Wild Food Friday. Bobby's the mastermind behind Wild Food Friday. Well, thank you. Hank, I, I'm just, I can't help but laugh because you know I consume all this information and I'm always looking for stuff to do things differently and there's always things that I don't know that I come across uh you know re most recently it was the pressure bleeding the fish that you were talking about in in fish care and I know we haven't touched on it but you just uh released your latest book hook line and supper which goes over a ton of different fish techniques and what to do and not do um do you, do you want to touch on anything fish for our audience Sure. Um, especially the people in Nevada who are trout fishing. Trout, more than most, really probably more than any other freshwater fish, really needs to be bled. Uh, and you don't have to pressure bleed it because that requires some equipment and virtually nobody has that on a, on a freshwater boat. But if you catch a fish, like I, <laughs> I, I like to actually keep fish in Pyramid Lake um, and the Paiutes and I are, are kind of of the same mind on this one. Uh, and I, I especially like to troll for them in front of the ladders and, uh, and pull a slot fish out, hold it up to the guys in the ladders, put my fingers in both gills, pop them out and put them face first in a bucket of five, uh, five gallon bucket of water to bleed them out. So that usually makes me super popular at Crosby's. Um, <laughs> but the point is this, because trout are fishy um, and fatty, they benefit enormously from that bleeding. And so what it does is it is it the blood contains small amounts of bacteria that will go rancid over time uh, if they are left in the meat. So when you bleed a fish, you, you know, you pull the fish out, you bonk it on the head to stun it, uh, and then you, you pop both gills, and then you put it in water so it bleeds out. 
when it bleeds out, that meat is going to be firmer and cleaner and lighter in color than an unbled fish. It's dramatic. It's, it's incredibly dramatic. And this, 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 this applies to all fish. I mean, perch and, and pike and, and, and any kind of white fish too, but it's more dramatic in the fish that have um, more fat and more color. So you will be shocked at the difference in quality between a bled trout and an unbled trout. And that's just one of many, many bits that I have in hook, line, and supper um, that I'm hoping people will, will be interested in. Yeah. And, oh, Aaron, were you going to say something? Um, yeah. Well, I was going to kind of take a step back with the, uh, with the Wild Food Fridays. I was just thinking as we were going that a lot of the things that attracted us to that Wild Food Friday was um, photos. Yeah, those were Holly's. Yeah, and so how, kind of explain how you know Holly. Or so Holly and I have been together for 20 years. And she and I met as newspaper reporters in Virginia. She worked for the Virginian Pilot and I worked for the Fredericksburg Freelance Star. Um, we like to call her newspaper the Pontius Pilot. It washes its hands of real news. Uh, <laughs> that's a little journalism joke there. And, and so we, were, we worked on competing newspapers and we got together in 2001 uh, and we moved to Minnesota together and we moved to California together and um, we do a lot of work together. And she is, she is kind of, it's interesting. Her two main strengths are obviously the photos. So pretty much all of the good photos and all of the cookbooks and on the website are hers. Sometimes I get lucky. Uh, and she's also kind of the font of the big thinking things that we do. So she thinks a lot about hunting philosophy and she thinks a lot about hunting ethics and kind of the bigger, harder questions that involve uh, primarily hunting. She's more of a hunter than an angler. Um, and so whenever we want to write something, we sit on the couch and, and bandy it back and forth and back and forth and back and forth about like, you know, um, you know, I wrote an essay called On Killing, which, which it still gets quite a bit of readership on the website. And it's about what it is to kill your food in person, because everybody, something has to die no matter who, somebody does it no matter what you're eating. And so when you face it directly as a hunter, um, it's, it's a thing. It's in this, you know, to use a 60s term, it's pretty heavy. And, um, and Holly is, is my sounding board when I want to write, and I'm her sounding board when she wants to write. So we're, we're a pretty good team. Yeah, it sounds like you guys are a great team. I didn't realize how involved she also was in the writing. And then if you take a look at those cookbooks, they're just, I mean, part of what makes them so great is all those pictures. So I highly recommend everyone check them out. Um, Hank, is there any specific book you want to highlight or anywhere you want to send people to? We just have a couple minutes here. Sure. Um, obviously, uh, huntgathercook.com. That's the hunter, angler, gardener, cook website. That's the core of what I do. And that's, you can buy signed books um, for me. You can, I mean, I'm not going to tell you not to go to Amazon because nobody can beat them for shipping. Um, but if you want them signed, you got to buy them from me. And that's, you'd get them on the website that way. Um, I also am very active on Instagram. So I'm at hunt, gather, cook on Instagram. And I run the podcast hunt, gather, talk this. I do it in seasons. So this third season is we're currently in the middle of. Uh, is all fish and seafood, both freshwater and salt. So if you're interested in, uh, in things with 
hooks and gills, uh, this is the season for you. Bobby, gotta listen to that. <laughs> so I, I listen to a lot of podcasts. I haven't started season three yet, but I've listened to the, the rabbit episode from season two multiple times and share it with people. You are going to love the rockfish episode. That's the first episode of season three. It is arguably the funniest episode I've ever done because my guest is Gene Wilder from Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. If Gene Wilder was a marine biologist, it's a scream. <laughs> yeah, I will have to check that out. Everyone, we encourage everyone to check out Hank's website. Hank, thank you so much. You're one of those guests we could just keep talking to. Yeah, I mean, if you want to, if you want to have me back and talk about a very specific topic, which maybe can hone things a bit better, I'm happy to come back. Yeah, that sounds good. This was a good introduction to you, and then we'll have to get you back for some specific podcasts. Yeah, for sure. I love that Hank throws in the Nevada, you know, little details every once in a while, and it's awesome that he he does spend some time in Nevada and, and connect that. I just live down the hill, so right. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Hank. And thank you everyone for listening. That does it for this week's Nevada Wild. again next week for our next adventure, Nevada Wild. It's a production of the Nevada Department of Wildlife. <laughs> <laughs>